Don Berwick has great lines. One of his great lines is this, a system produces the results it is designed to produce. If you want to create a system, let's say at a departmental level, where you have employee ownership, you have peer-to-peer kind of pressure on performing quality stuff, then to me, that means you need some way to engage that front line. Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts, Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. wander into one of the operating rooms at the Ottawa Civic Hospital and hear a discussion about colorectal surgery, Plato, and Drake happening simultaneously, you could be pretty sure that you were in the OR of Dr. Hussein Malou. Dr. Malou is a duly trained, minimally invasive, and colorectal surgeon in Ottawa. We had the pleasure of speaking with the Renaissance man about the impressive quality improvement initiatives he has led in Ottawa, as well as his thoughts on the unique shared practice model in the Ottawa Colorectal Group. True to the advice he shares at the end of the podcast, Dr. Malouk continuously remains fresh and was actually recently named the Maiden Director of Planetary Health at the University of Ottawa. This was such an enjoyable conversation. So without further ado, Dr. Malouk. Can you tell us about where you grew up and what your training pathway looked like? Yeah. Um, So I grew up in uh, Toronto. I guess, you know, a lot of people don't talk about their, 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 I guess, educational experiences prior to their training. But let me tell you that mine was kind of I think life-shaping because uh, I went to this uh, and take this in the best way possible it's kind of like kind of like this gifted high school okay it was called the UTS University of Toronto School and uh, back then it was semi-private so you know you wrote this exam you got in uh, somehow I got in I assure you I was at the bottom of my class and uh, the thing though that and the reason why I bring it up is to say that I was I was humbled basically when I went there and my friend group that I continue to interact with, um, they kind of, you know, it's great. You get introduced to this incredible milieu of people who inspire you and have continued to kind of do that for me. So I'll I'll tell you, for example, and and I'll get to my training in a second. uh, um, But, you know, like one of my buddies, he, uh, he was like, you know, uh, you must have seen in the media, like that million species going extinct, that whole uh, uh, study uh, from the, you know, UN on biodiversity. He was like the Canadian lead on that, wow. you know, like, and so, you know, just doing these incredible things. Other guys in New York Times, best-selling author, you know, he actually wrote a article for Roscoe. Um, another buddy of mine is like taking the year off just because, 
you know, he's been COO of this and this and that, and he's done incredible things. And he just kind of follows what, what is kind of fulfilling to him. So, so I'm kind of surrounded and I know you could name more people like, so, you know, like, uh, but, but it's just um, to be surrounded by that from that age was good. And it really humbled me and made me realize, you know, I'm not very smart. And, and so then, you know, I, I ended up going, uh, doing my uh, undergrad at Western. Um, I did my gen surge uh, and medical school at Western as well. And, uh, I, you know, I wasn't one of these people who uh, had any clear path in front of me. Um, I uh, had done zero research as a medical student or in my first two years of residency. And then I sat down with a program director and said, hey, I want to do laparoscopic surgery. It kind of seems like maybe that's where things will go with certain things. And I want a big community job maybe. And I think I think that would be a good fit. So they said, well, you know, we're going to hook you up with uh, with like some research with what we think. And I don't want to offend anyone here, but um, what they thought was like at that time, they thought it was a great program. And it was uh, Dr. Poulan, Dr. Matza and Dr. Shalakta in uh, at St. Mike's in uh, Toronto. And uh, they were kind enough to let me do research with them in third year, which kind of then set up my trajectory to do MIS, which I ended up doing in Ottawa because Mamatsa and Poulin moved to Ottawa. Um, and uh, and then after that, colorectal fellowship. And uh, yeah, and then and then kind of from there, just uh, tried to continue to learn after that. So yeah, the, that was an interesting group at the time, hey? Like, like some real pioneers in terms of Canadian MIS surgery and a heavyweight collective for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. I wanted to shift gears here for a second and, and talk to you about quality improvement because that's clearly a, a huge passion of yours and something you're well known across the country for, uh, particularly in, in the colorectal circle. Um, and, and, you know, the first question I want to ask you is maybe a bit of a basic one, but I feel like quality improvement is this, again, a nebulous sort of term that might mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So what exactly does quality improvement mean to you? At its very general level, you know, what I really like when I think about quality improvement is throwing the C in front of it, like, you know, the CQI, the continuous quality improvement. And and that, I think, is anything at the end of the day at its most basic level and whatever you can do to reduce harm to patients. And so then, you know, when you take that and you go to something more, I guess, definitive, like, uh, you know, I think the IHI quadruple aim, for example, touches on some very kind of big piece of that. So when you think about that, there's, you know, patient experience, for example, like that, if they have a terrible patient, if there's a terrible experience, that's patient harm. Um, you know, when we talk about doing these things and reducing costs, I think that within our current context and the context we are going to be, our health system is going to be in within our lifetimes, I think for sure, like reducing costs is, is a really big thing. The public health part of it, I think, is really big that, that that I've continued to hopefully understand more. And, you know, I went back to school and just did a master's in public health, uh, which I just graduated from uh, in November. Um, and uh, and then like the uh, the whole thing with like, uh, you know, the, the healthcare team as well. Like, I think we see, uh, you know, especially with with COVID now and things like that, like there's a significant kind of mental health uh, hit that people take with going through all these tough times. And, uh, and so I think all, all those things kind of play into it really well. But at the end of the day, to me, it's a lot of, you know, it's patient and team centered and reducing harm to both those parties. 
So what kind of motivated you to get interested in, in QI? Was that something that you were working on as a resident, as you mentioned, or how did that kind of evolution come into play? Yeah. So it's like most things with me, right? I, I don't really have uh, forethought. Um, you know, I think, you know, all of us kind of want to offer the best care to our patients. And uh, so we were in NISQIP, which I think everyone knows about. So um, NISQIP had shown that our our hospital, specifically like colorectal, had uh, like really high morbidity driven by a high SSI rate. And actually we saw that across our whole department. And, um, you know, I was kind of uh, tapped to do QI stuff for our division. And so that's really how it happened. It wasn't because I was like, oh, I have a real interest in this. It was more the division head going like, yeah, here's a guy kind of in his, you know, kind of junior guy in the division. I'm going to tell him to do QI. But it was interesting, like Dr. Poulin at that time, he told me, um, and Dr. Poulin told me a lot of really smart things, um, but he said, you know, QI is going to sustain you into the future, mark my words. And uh, lo and behold, I mean, it, it really is one of the things I enjoy most and makes my career fulfilling. So he was right. Thank you, Dr. Poulin. I, I want to get back to the QI work that you've done and, and dig a little deeper into the work that you did subsequently. But I just want to pause and note something that, you know, you talk about the fact that you sort of took these suggestions from your mentors and kind of ran with it and went with it. And and we've had guests on the on the show that, you know, they we always ask this question about what people would, might have done differently or what advice they would give to themselves as a resident. And some people, a lot of people have said, you know, I, I would have been more deliberate in what choices I made. But I, I, I think there's some role as you've clearly shown for kind of being open to the possibilities particularly early on and it's curious is that sort of how you how you approach your career a little bit as you kind of have this sense of of openness to to possibilities or do you think sort of now as as you advance maybe towards sort of a mid-career point that you're a much more deliberate about picking what kind of career choices you want to make you know there's some people i think because virtue of their intellect, uh, drive, interest. Uh, you know, I think of, uh, I'll give you an example in Ottawa, you know, Rebecca Auer, like what a, what a great researcher, right? Like she's like an inspiration to so many people, including me. And I go like, wow, like, you know, it'd be awesome if I could, you know, delve down to a level where I can start figuring out how to cure cancer. But you know what? Like, I'm not that smart. So I'm going to go with my strengths and I'm going to, take like the, uh, you know, I don't know if you've uh, come across this book uh, by David Epstein. It's called Range. And, you know, he talks about the fact that, you know, it, it's okay for some people to have like a lot of different areas that they find interesting. For me, QI is like an outlet to a whole bunch of different things. Um, and so that's what I've been enjoying, you know, is, is kind of just, just, just trying a lot of different things and uh, and I enjoy them. And as long as I'm enjoying them, I, I don't know. I, I think I'm not, I, I have still not become deliberate uh, is the answer to your question. Well, it gives a person like me hope because I, I have eclectic interests, as you know. And so uh, I, I quite take that advice to heart. 
But let's go back to the QI stuff. So you got tapped by Dr. Poulin to be like the QI person in your department. And then you went ahead and you just ran with that. And uh, across the country, I think you're, I think it's safe to say that you're well known for developing uh, some very innovative programs at uh, uh, or in Ottawa, uh, particularly the Comprehensive Unit-Based Safety Program or CUSP. Can you tell us about CUSP and uh, what was involved in generating that? Sure. So, you know, again, I started off uh, for our division, actually. Um, so it was just general surgery. And, you know, I knew nothing, right? So for six months, I'll be honest, like I did, I did nothing. Like there was an SSI rate and I had no idea how to move that forward. So by that point in time, you know, I, we talked about the fact like, you know, a three-year undergrad, four years med school, five years gen surge, two years of fellowships, or I guess three years, three years of fellowship plus a master's in epi, right? So at all this education, I really couldn't move the new, I didn't even know how to. And uh, so we end up, the hospital's getting kind of worried at this point in time because they've been in NISQIP for two years prior to this and the needle hasn't moved either on that. And they're worried maybe, you know, it's going to get out somewhere and, you know, everyone's going to look pretty bad because we had this data and nothing happened. They'd really tried a kind of top-down approach which hadn't really resonated um, or, or been effective. And so I end up, they end up paying, like, they, they give, like, each of the division leads, like, they're like, here, here's, here's like, $1,000 to go to this NISQIP conference. So I go, I sign up really late. There's, like, one, con like, one, I was like, I'm going down at Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City maybe is super exciting to a lot of people, but I, I mean, it didn't, no one told me it was super exciting. So I was like, I'll sign up for like a, you know, a, a workshop. And the last workshop available was the only one that was available, something called Comprehensive Unit-Based Safety Program. It's CUSP and it's run by uh, Johns Hopkins. And so I go to that and it's like a half day thing. And so I, I'm listening and I'm like, wow, it's like, this, this sounds pretty simple. Like it makes sense. Like basically you could take a multidisciplinary team you get an executive sponsor for that team. You do it unit-based, which kind of made intuitive sense to me. Like, you know, for example, you do it on an inpatient floor. You do it for a, like, let's say colorectal surgery in the OR. Um, you do it for HPB surgery in the OR, for example. Um, and you meet on a regular basis and you generate ideas. And uh, it just so happened that the department chair of surgery, like the interim de department chair, who was just switching that time from Dr. Poulin and Dr. Sundarisen, Dr. Sundarisen happened to be sitting there with me in that thing. And we're sitting there, we're going like, this kind of makes sense to us. So come back and, uh, you know, I got this small grant to kind of start off three teams in colorectal surgery in on the general surgery inpatient floor at the two main inpatient hospital sites. And it, and like we got, you know, we basically start this process by asking two simple questions. It's like, um, you know, how's the next patient going to be harmed and what can we do to prevent it? And uh, we also threw in, we kind of cheated and we made like four questions. Like, how do you think the next SSI is going to happen and, and what can we do to prevent it? And we gave it to everyone, like housekeeping, because these are the people who are on your team, housekeeping, OT, PT, uh, frontline nurses, residents, uh, surgeons, um, you know, uh, there's probably some names I'm forgetting here, but like, yeah, like we distributed widely. We got a bunch of ideas. Those ideas started our teams rolling. We picked some quick win things. And all of a sudden, you know, again, it's the first time, like people were a bit skeptical, but it was the first time. If you think about it, I don't know how often this happened to you, but at that point in time, it was the first time for a lot of people that a frontline nurse sat down with a surgeon in a meeting 
for like an hour that was dedicated to patient care. And for there to be OT and PT there and a resident and everyone's discussing what can we do to make things better? That really resonated with people. And, um, and like became a powerful thing and then it spread. So went up to like, you know, 17 teams and we developed some infrastructure around that. And, uh, you know, tried to share those lessons that we learned with other places. And then the Sontero Collaborative came along, so we were able to kind of share it there. And there was a BC Collaborative that already existed. So, you know, we kind of shared what we had done there. And and so it's just, you know, it's one of those things, again, like most things, man, like uh, I didn't come up with that idea myself. I just kind of took it and tried to adapt it for our context. And, it, you know, it happened to work. Like I knew we had kind of made it when – on the surgical safety checklist now, we have something in Ottawa where it says like, are there any cuss measures for this case? And uh, so, you know, that was that was kind of nice to see. But again, that's like, you know, that's a team effort. And again, I think that's where that humility from going to UTS came in handy. I realized I'm not that smart to come up with ideas and solutions. That sitting down with people and getting people to, and it's, I mean, that's supported by evidence too. Multidisciplinary teams are better than, kind of uni specialty teams in terms of coming up with solutions and having mixed demographics, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, all that to say it's led to a lot of different things. And if I can still drone on a little bit more, it's gone on to like stuff like beyond SSI and stuff like that. Opioid reduction. Our big thing last year is looking at reducing our carbon footprint. Um, you know, we did a thing on measuring surgeon empathy, um, so like, it, that's where, like, then again, I'm using kind of QI to explore things, which I think really matter, like the climate crisis. So, yeah. Can you give us an example of something that came out of the discussion from with these different groups that you wouldn't have necessarily thought of, uh, if you hadn't kind of changed the approach? Cause I think fundamentally, and again, just like all great ideas, they sound simple, when someone presented, but like, obviously you had to clearly recognize that this was the approach to take, but you know, the fundamentally, I think what you, what you did differently is you made it much more granular and much more about what everyone's frontline experience was. And, and, and you could leverage what people's real expertise was and all these different facets to come up with a plan that perhaps people hadn't seen before. So can you give us, give us an example about uh, something that came up from those discussions and, and turned into a, a, an initiative that you wouldn't have seen otherwise? Sure. So, um, you know, sitting down at, at those meetings, for example, one thing that came up is it seemed absurd in a way that, you know, you have like nurses who are looking after surgical patients for whatever amount of time you want to call it, 23 hours and 55 minutes out of the day, 57 minutes out of the day, 59 minutes if the surgical team's running really quick um, with really never any clear communication between like the nursing staff and the surgical team. And back then, you know, there was nothing like, uh, so, so, so that was the underlying problem. So then we had some meetings with frontline nurses, residents, surgeons to be like, like, what can we do? This, this doesn't make sense. Like, what can we do? So, you know, so, like there were multiple things that came out of that. One of those things was, before it became kind of fashionable or a hospital, we started these kind of, we call them like, uh, I can't remember what kind of rounds we call them, but we had these rounds where basically surgical team would be there and, um, and, you know, 
every nurse would come and talk about the patients we were looking after and run through it with the entire team. So OT, PT, dietitian, everyone would be there and kind of talk about the plan and what the discharge plan was. Now this morphed into discharge rounds and, and, you know, like these floor huddles became a thing, which again, got piloted then on our floors, which were already doing it. So it was a quick win for the hospital and then spread across the whole hospital. And I think that again was recognized probably at multiple centers at that time. And it's probably become a thing that's in most hospitals now, but back then that was something like, you know, without sitting down, like that whole communication piece you know, you talk about patient care, that's one thing. Um, but also like we did a, you know, we actually checked what the culture of the floor was and how nurses and residents found it before and after. And it made a huge difference actually to the way nurses felt. And even three years later, our results dropped off a bit, which spoke to the fact we need to keep on concentrating on stuff, but it was still significantly better than at, uh, that at baseline in terms of nurses feeling like their ideas were heard and stuff like that. And then that's where you kind of build culture, et cetera. You, you know, you, you've given us so many, so many pearls and, and, and you've, you've very eloquently talked about so much stuff. I, I, I want to maybe hit or unpack that term culture. Cause I, I think that's at least in my mind, really the key to continuous and, and progressive and long-term change. One of your one of your many administrative titles is the vice chair in quality. Um, so obviously a, a high in leadership position and you've outlined how you used cusp and sort of a bottom up and out approach to to engage the folks that you know that are stakeholders and maybe historically haven't been stakeholders and should be stakeholders going forward. We also talk a lot in this talk podcast about you know leadership and teamwork and what those definitions really mean and who does it well. So I'm curious from your sort of vice chair uh, leadership uh, view of things, how is it that you really inspire change in culture in your environment? And I, I know that's a very broad 30,000-foot question, but what, what are the nuances if Amir wants to sit down with Morat Hamid in Vancouver and really pursue the same directive or we want to do it here in Calgary in, in the same way that, that you've done it. What are the nuts and bolts of that? I would track this back and I wish I had this article in front of me, but in, you know, one really fun magazine to read or journal to read every once in a while is, is the Harvard business review. And in, in 2014, they had this uh, really nice article on what um, companies do to improve culture that drives quality. And the number one thing you just spoke about is, for example, you know, you speak to someone like Morad. So you get you get leadership emphasis on this. Um, then the second piece of that is you get kind of credible messaging around it. So, for example, you know, let's say, uh, you know, decide uh, Amir is going to start running, you know, improving communication um with, with surgical staff. Well, you know, if Amir is the guy who's constantly berating the entire team, and I can say this because I know Amir is like super nice guy, you know. Oh, he's um, terrible. He's terrible. Yeah, exactly. He's terrible. Amir. <laughs> Holy mackerel. But, you know, like, exactly. So, you know, you need, you need credible messengers for sure. So you need that leadership emphasis, you need the credible messengers. And then, you know, the, the, the big piece in that article came down to, and they looked across like healthcare organizations, business organizations, everything. And it was like, it was basically employee ownership and kind of 
keeping peers accountable. And I think that's where, you know, you talk about like the thing I always keep in mind with QI, whether it's culture, whether it's a SSI thing or a communication is Don Berwick has great lines. One of his great lines is this, a system produces the results it is designed to produce. So if you want to create a system, let's say at a departmental level where you have employee ownership, you have peer to peer kind of pressure on performing quality stuff. Then to me, that means you need some way to engage that front line to have their ideas heard in a credible way. Um, you need people leading those teams who are credible and then you need the leadership people to buy into it. And that's what kind of, you know, that's why I think Cusp kind of worked because you had that front line, you had an executive sponsor and in teams that worked and not all our teams worked, right? I mean, we, we failed lots of times. Um, you know, sometimes that, that credible messenger was not, was not there, but, you know, and part of that messaging as well, just in terms of QI building culture, et cetera, is not being afraid to not, to, to, to fail. Like, you know, one thing I always throw up on my presentations is, and I stole this from Cliff Coe, I told him I'd steal it from him. Um, he, you know, he runs like the ACS NISQIP program. He gave this great analogy of like, you know, to like a great Canadian analogy, which is if you want to, if you want to score a goal in hockey, you got to get shots on goal, get shots on goal. I think you need a team. And, and then, you know, as part of that team, you need to realize not all your shots are going to go in. And, and so like, to me, cusp is that team and stuff. And, and yeah. And so, uh, I think those would be the critical pieces to kind of, to kind of moving things forward. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, I, I think Cliff Coe has delivered more, uh, practice changing advice in his, uh, you know, moderate career than most of us together will, will do in a lifetime. He's an amazingly smart guy who's, uh, who's changed the world. Yeah. Very cool guy. You know, maybe the last question that we would like to ask on, on the QI side of things or the continuous QI side of things, which I, which I absolutely love and we'll start to use is if you're a resident, um, or a trainee or even a, a faculty, what are some of the, the training uh, access points that you can improve your knowledge and your understanding besides going to a NISQIP conference? Uh, you know, and obviously the, the background is, you know, you're MPH and we have a number of, of uh, surgeons of our vintage across the country now that have done formal masters in QI. Um, but, yeah. but beyond that, where, where can we access that kind of uh, information and training? So, I mean, for example, uh, IHI has a great, online and a lot of it is free modules to to kind of learn like oh you know here this is what a pdsa cycle is for example um you know there's all sorts of different uh like fellowships which people don't need to kind of leave for a long period of time like uh back in the day like when i started to get serious about stuff i did one with the american hospital association national patient safety foundation that's possible for residents as well you know um there are opportunities like through IHI and stuff. So there's, there's so much stuff and the online stuff just continues to explode, especially with COVID, right. With all the virtual stuff that's available now. So I think where people are interested there, I mean, as long as you've got, you know, and I guess like uh, it's time, right. Which is 
I have to throw this line in just because I've been doing Peloton recently. Jess Sims always says time is a non-renewable resource. Um, so I mean, it's yes. precious stuff, right? But, uh, but like, if you have the time to, to put towards something you really care about or passionate about like this, then yeah, doing some of that stuff online, I think would be, be a great way to start. And then, and then I think a lot of it is like practical stuff, like, you know, learning about change management as well. So there's the QI stuff, but if you don't know about Cotter's steps of change, I think, and you're trying to create change, then I think you need to educate yourself just a little bit more, you know? And, uh, and again, like those HBR articles, like, uh, I mean, his is the first article in their little change book, but yeah, there, there's so much, out there. I mean, there's just so much knowledge out there. Right. And it's, uh, and I mean, you just talk to someone in the field, I think is the best way to start because then they can point you to stuff, which they think is, is relevant and will hopefully make your learning a little bit more efficient. You know, one of the really interesting things, I think, in the last, you can correct me if I'm, if I'm off a bit, but five to eight years is your Ottawa groups have, have really started to look at preoperative anemia. And obviously, I'm hooked in with the HPV uh, colleagues that you have, but I was wondering if you yeah. could sort of talk about that a, a little bit and where you guys have been and where you're going with that topic in general. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for asking about that. So, Again, along this theme of QI, right, we started to look at, you know, what can we do? So we did a lot of stuff in the OR, like closing trays and wound protectors, which we actually got that idea from HPB. And then we started looking at preoperative kind of optimization. So, you know, great anesthetist here, great researcher, Dan McIsaac, who, you know, I've been lucky enough to work with on frailty. And then we started to look at other modifiable factors. So, you know, um, what are things that you can like fix and have an impact that are based on evidence? Well, smoking is one of those things. So we worked on that and uh, your journal, Dr. Ball has been kind enough to accept that. So hopefully uh, that all that stuff on smoking cessation will be out soon. Another area was, uh, you know, kind of a little bit more controversial, but one of our cusp teams in actually uh, gyne oncology worked on it was glycemic control. Um, so we got some stuff instituted on that kind of uh, department wide. And then, you know, when we start looking at stuff, I went to this talk and it was, and I wish I could remember her name, it was a hematologist in Toronto. She's awesome. Does all sorts of uh, stuff. And I realized, like she gave this talk about anemia and all the impact that it has. And it just blew me away because, you know, I used to see like a hemoglobin of a 105. I'd be like, yeah, it's fine. Or like if they have 90, I'd send it to internal medicine. I'd be like, yeah, you know what? We'll give them transfusion in the OR when they're put to sleep. So they weren't doing anything about it either. And because this anemia area was kind of an orphaned area because no one really was owning it. So that's kind of what struck the, the, the kind of interest in that. So initially it was QI looking at our SSIs, working on stuff and then kind of moving to like some preventative, I guess, medicine type stuff. And, uh, um, and that was kind of part of the bundle that we looked at. All right. To continue our Peloton uh, meta narrative, we'll switch gears again and talk about something that I think is really unique to the Ottawa Colorectal Group, which is your shared practice. And, uh, uh, you know, to paraphrase Top Knife, your group actually has a shared practice, which is one of those things that's often often drawn or talked about, but rarely photographed. Um, and can you so can you describe for our listeners what exactly does your practice look like and how exactly does a shared uh, a practice work. So I started in solo practice and, uh, and then the HPB group got to give full credit. To I'm going to shout out one of my best friends forever, Fatty Bauer. He, uh, he was doing that in, uh, HPB. Um, and so I looked at that and I was like, you know, 
and we were chatting, we chat all the time. We're like, got to do this in colorectal. And so um, one piece, and I'm sure you guys know this already, but if you're ever recruiting people and you have the privilege to do that, it's very simple for me anyway. Every colorectal surgeon that I've recruited into our group, I clearly believe, and it is bearing out to be true that they are better than me and will like exceed me in every way. So that was my real only hiring criteria. So yeah, it's a bar set pretty low there, but like these guys are awesome. So I got a special shout out to Isabel Raish, Lar Williams, Riley Musselman. Uh, those are my, that's like my work family and, and actually family even outside of work. So, um, but started sole practice and Isabel Raish was the first person in. Um, and then Lara was added pretty soon after that, and after that, Riley. And I'll tell you from going from me to and me and Isabel, we got almost another full surgeon's worth of resources. It wasn't quite, quite two FTEs, let's put it that way. Um, and what we did was we basically have one central line comes in. Either of us will see that person in clinic. Either of us would operate on it. And then that quickly evolved to the same model with Lara, except when Lara came, we got maybe another half surgeons worth of resources. Okay, so now we're sitting at about two and a half surgeons worth of resources for three people. Not not bad. And and, and I mean that gives you some flexibility to do stuff that you want to do like QI or and these guys have all done amazing stuff outside of of just clinical stuff. And then when we when we hired Riley, we basically we didn't get anything. Um, but we made a decision. We really liked Riley. We wanted to hire him on and uh, we had enough non-clinical things we were doing that we were happy I, and number one, to get a pay cut because we got, you know, if you, there's resources at the end are what generate money. Um, uh, there's money for other things like being program director of general surgery like Lara is. But at the end of the day, it was pay cut for all of us, but, a, you know, an intentional one. And the way we work now is essentially, let's say, Amir, you come in tomorrow into a cancer clinic. Um, you may see any of the four of us. Now, usually maximum, there's usually two of us in clinic, sometimes three of us in clinic. But uh, so you may see any of the four of us in clinic. And then um, your surgery may be done by surgeon number two. And then you may be rounded on by surgeon number three. And then when you come back to have your pathology reviewed, that may be surgeon number four. So that that and and we kind of take a week at a time rounding on the floor so we're rounding one weekend out of every four um and um you know we take our turn on going through the paperwork that comes in like in terms of triaging the referrals that come to our office and stuff like that and you know blood work that comes in on on patients and stuff um and uh yeah those that would be the kind of the main piece oh and we have a shared administrative unit so we have two admin assistants uh, for the for the four of us, and again, everything is just central queue for scopes for ORs. Just next surgeon available goes in. I think probably that's more and more common. At least elements of that. And if you look across the country, um, you know, acute care surgery, trauma surgery are probably the the forefathers and foremothers of of that model to some extent. And you guys are really taking it on the scheduled or elective side uh, to, to the next level for sure. I'm curious though, how do you articulate that, uh, those transitions and that overall care model to the patients? Is it something that you verbalize when you meet them in clinic or is it a, uh, an information package that they take home with them or is it stated when they come in? 
what, what does that sort of back and forth interaction happen firstly? And then secondly, how do you handle it when there is a problem? Um, maybe that requires, um, uh, you know, more, more and more detailed or more long-term continuity. And maybe it's not even a problem. Maybe it's just complexity, whatever, whatever the driver would be. From the messaging standpoint, our office messages that uh, as soon as patients enter the system, they know um, they're told it's going to be any one of the four surgeons that will see them and that they're looked after by a team. And that's what we message to them as well is that basically instead of receiving care from one surgeon, they're receiving care from a team of surgeons. And I'll tell you the vast majority of patients, they buy into that first of all, and then some of them actually articulate the fact that they, they've had surgeries before, but they really love the fact that they've got this team that's there because I mean, no matter how awesome that one individual is, it's really tough for that person to be available 365 days a year. And uh, I mean, that's, that's really what we have. Um, and uh, you know, we have a backup colorectal call uh, for when, you know, when, it, if, so when general surgeons on call, if you be surgeon on call, like if there's an issue that requires nuanced care, they know um, that like there's a, there's a, there's a call schedule that's put out for subspecialty with, with, you know, our names on it. So there's, there's care for that too. That's much easier to service as a group versus an individual. Um, and then, you know, the second part of your question in terms of complexity and, you know, I think complexity first of all, arises, I guess, very quickly in my mind, as I'm answering, it's like two scenarios. Like one is you get initial elective complex cases, in which case having input, an instant second opinion in clinic, et cetera, is invaluable. Um, And I think when you look at literature around, even in the business world around people who become more senior, the decision-making is actually sometimes worse because you know, people may have thoughts up to that point, but then it's that single person that's kind of making that final decision. And, and, uh, and, and so they found that by having more of this group decision-making, you actually make better decisions. That's, that's one in like more of an elective type setting, but even when you get complications, you can always go back to that group. Like we have teaching sessions every Friday morning where we discuss complicated cases. If, if there are any that we need to discuss, but also on the floor, I'll tell you as a, as a solo surgeon and Chad, you probably don't have this problem, but man, I've had some complications and some of those complications stay in for a really long time and rounding on those people. It's tough. And, you know, part of the toughness of it is one, I mean, it's, it's just, I mean, it's tough. Um, But the second part is like, you know, you almost sometimes lose that perspective and by us kind of changing every week, um, it doesn't stop you from coming back to round if you want to, but there's someone in charge that week and and they bring that fresh perspective, right? So it, it's kind of like this renewed thing. Like I used to do public exonerations by myself. Well, guess what? Now we always make sure there's two of us booked. Guess what? Like when I'm hungry for lunch, probably, I don't know if I was doing as good surgery for that patient, but I can now step out for half an hour, an hour if I want and my partner is going to be, I know they're going to, well, in my case, I know they're going to do a better job than I am. So I can step out and then I can uh, come back in and they're going to be there till the end of that case. So even when we're closing fascia, hopefully, you know, between two staff and, and of course our 
our awesome fellows and residents, like we're going to do the best job possible. We've had David Urbach come in and talk about this on the podcast as well. And, and I think there's uh, a lot of value in thinking about having a, a model like this, particularly as we now think about trying to catch up with this COVID backlog. So, you know, I think it's, it's really super important, I think, for, for uh, groups to think about how they can optimize their flow. But I, I think it does require a big mental change. And, and you've demonstrated this throughout our conversation, but it requires huge humility to say, you know what, I, my, I'm not, <laughs> I'm certainly not necessarily better than my colleagues. And secondly, that they can do just as good or a better job than I, you know, it's not like, you know, my dad used to say that one of his mentors used to say, these hands are for this operation, but that, that mentality kind of has to go. So I am curious though, like I, I was lucky enough to spend some time with you and you, you, as a group, you're such a great collaborative group. You, you, you talk to each other so well, you clearly like each other. What happens if you have a, dis, a dispute or sort of a, a difference of opinion about how to manage a certain patient or manage a complication or just generally have a difference in approach on a specific situation? How do you kind of resolve that difference? Yeah, you know, uh, like that happens, right? I mean, it'd be impossible for that not to happen. But I think, you know, it's that. So I think, you know, we just uh, we just uh, Terry's week, one of our fellows, we just did this this kind of scoping review on group practice. And, um, you know, one of our findings was obviously, look, personality is a big thing. You get the wrong personality and that can actually take away from your quality of life within a group. So I say that because picking those people is super important. And the reason why I think is exactly these type of scenarios where you can have a very clear, open, honest discussion about what you think in a safe space um, and, and arrive at a consensus. And, um, and that's usually what happens, right? Because again, I think we're all there just like, you know, the vast majority of people in medicine and surgery, we're there to help people. And so we're trying to arrive at a conclusion that we think is going to help the most. And usually through consensus, especially, you know, with the, with the relationship that we have built over these years and the trust is, you know, we can, we can arrive at that and, and we can pivot um and and change and uh and i think that for me makes me better person and surgeon for sure do you think that it shifts the, your relationship with your patients like you know you've done both solo practice and and obviously now the shared model and and there is a sense of of having ownership over the patient this is this is my patient i'm going to look after them you know I, whatever happens i'm going to take care of it do you, do you do you lose that at all or is it or is there a sense sort of like these are all my patients and i have to kind of take care of them as if they're all my patients kind of thing like can you talk about that relationship yeah no i think it's exactly uh, what you said you know the latter piece is uh they're all our patients and you know what like it feels a lot better that i have a like we're a team and we're looking after all these patients and those patients know that they've got a team that is looking after them. And so I think, uh, uh, you know, it's a great, it's a great thing. Um, Like like I said, I think it's great for patient care. I think it's great for surgeon lifestyle. You know, you look at, there was that survey, um, you know, that came out, I'm sure you guys are aware of, of like the biggest regrets that surgeons, retired surgeons have had, right? And number one was not spending time with their family. And number two was like 
they'd want a less stressful practice environment. And I would say, uh, you know, group practice hits number one and number two perfectly. And so, um, you know, I think when I look back at my career, one of the best things that'll come out of this is this, is this group practice and being so thankful that, uh, you know, I was able to have partners to, to, to do that with. So now here's, here comes a real serious question. When things are going down in the OR and things are tough, what is the music you're going to put in the, on in the OR? I know the answer Dude, to this. You know the answer, man. It's Drake all the way. <laughs> okay. All the way, man. And, but the great thing about Drake is Drake knows when I'm in trouble, man, and he comes on the playlist. My playlist at random. The residents of Fells don't believe it, man, until they experience it. You have to experience it to understand that the Six God also has jurisdiction in my OR. Okay, why why Drake? I mean, I know you're from Toronto and you're brown like like I am, and so all you know, it's ticking all those boxes. But but why Drake? Why why do you like Drake so much? Awesome, like why not Kendrick Canadian? Lamar? Or so? is, is Kendrick Lamar Canadian? No. Okay, man. Well, there's your answer. No. So like, uh, no, Drake's Canadian. He's awesome. Uh, I like his I like his music. He's uh, and and he's proud, man. He's proud to be Canadian. He's like proud of Toronto. He's like. It, uh, I think he has a lot of Canadian pride, man. You know, what a medical student asked me today, why, why I, you know, like, did I ever think about working in the States? And I was like, you know what? No. You know why? Because I'm Canadian, man. Like I want to give back to like my country, man. Like, uh, this is where I want to be. And this is where Drake wants to be too, man. So, uh, and I'll tell you, uh, Justin Bieber, also Canadian, also awesome. I know people like to hate on him. He's awesome too. That guy's the demigod of my award. So, you know, when there's like kind of minor problems, Justin will come out and, and, uh, and he'll help. So, uh, that's, yeah, that's fantastic. I love it. Um, I, I also have to just ask you, and, and maybe this is an even more difficult question than, than the last one, but you know, we've, we've had long conversations about philosophy, uh, when I was there on elective. And so I'm curious, who's your favorite philosopher and why? That, you know, man, that's a really tough question, right? Like there's, 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 there's so much good stuff. Um, I'll tell you the stuff that really got me hooked. I love uh, the dialogues between, you know, like that Plato's written up between Plato and Socrates. The cave analogy is something that I, I think really resonates with my worldview. You know, I think everyone should read the cave analogy. I mean, my daughters read the cave analogy. Um, I love Stoicism too. I love the meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Um, you know, so, so much smart stuff there, right? And uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I guess if I had to, if I had to pick one thing and one, you know, it would be, it would be that cave analogy that uh, that Plato wrote up, and uh, I think that'd be my my favorite my favorite piece of philosophy, but I mean, so much other good stuff out there, right? Like you diamond. A, I mean, you know, fulfilling life through Aristotle talks about all that stuff. It's all good. But, uh, but if there's one, just like there can only be, you know, there's, there's just that one God of my war, Drake, guess it's gotta be that. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. I, I couldn't agree more. Marcus Aurelius, uh, never leaves my, my nightstand. So I, I, I hear you there. If you were to go back in time and, Give the younger you some sage advice. What would you tell yourself? You know, I'm going to, I'm going to say, give myself the advice that I think I've taken to heart 
and that Eric Poulin gave me as a, I remember I was in a cafeteria at St. Mike's in Toronto, my third year residency, when I was uh, doing my research there to try and nail that MIS fellowship. And it was very simple. And he said, you know, make sure every year you do one new thing. And he's like, it doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be surgical. You know, it doesn't need to be like picking up a new surgical technique or something, but he's like, do one new thing every year. And, uh, and that will, again, sustain you and keep you from getting bored. And man, I have really conscientiously tried to do that. Um, and I would say that, uh, out of almost anything has really, um, has really kept things interesting for me. And so, um, one new thing every year, um, I think that would be the advice I would, uh, encourage everyone to, and I, you know, like, uh, and just to give you an example, like, you know, it could be like one year it was, uh, it's like doing that QI leadership fellowship thing. You know, one year it was doing leadership Academy. One year it was like starting up TEM at my institution. Um, you know, for a couple of years, I counted doing my MPH. Um, so, you know, this year it's, it's really working on global health and, uh, really pushing that part of stuff, which I haven't really done before, but that's going to be my thing in 2021. And uh, so, yeah, that would be, that would be it. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again. Thanks again.